some people say they wish they could live in a book. Now I get it, but me personally, there is nothing like film and TV. New worlds, galaxies, unspoken laws and universes to explore. And I love these worlds. I want to go for a walk through Mordor with Frodo. I want to see time and space with Spock. I want to drive a car into a battlefield with Optimus Prime. I am obsessed. I rewatch and track the hidden messages, Easter eggs, and theories that come from these amazing franchises. So sit back, grab your popcorn, and let me take you through the finer details of these incredible stories. I'm T, and welcome to Theories by T. I am Optimus Prime. And I send this message to all Transformers fans who love a good podcast about your favorite movies. We've got seven movies to review, dissect, and celebrate, so there's no time to lose. Autobots, roll out! Just kidding, this ain't Optimus, it's Terrell. Admit it, that impression was spot on. Impressions are kind of my secret talent. Anyway, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Theories by T podcast. I'm your host T and today in partnership with Sky Cinema, we're diving into not one, not two, but seven films in the Transformers movie universe. Breaking down their best scenes, characters, music stings, behind the scenes trivia and more to take a look back at what made this franchise so iconic. So to round up all the movies quick, we had Transformers, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen and Dark of the Moon starring Shia LaBeouf. Then Age of Extinction and The Last Knight starring Mark Wahlberg. The prequel film Bumblebee starring Hayley Steinfeld, followed by prequel slash sequel Rise of the Beast starring Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback. Don't worry, I'll try to be as clear as possible as I go. We're discussing these films in release order, so let's get cracking. Transformers 2007. So this film followed Sam Witwicky a regular guy who finds himself in the crosshairs of two warring alien races on Earth, the Autobots and Decepticons. Giant, sentient, weaponized robots with the ability to transform into unassuming vehicles. Sam has to help the Autobots stop the Decepticons from finding a powerful weapon known as the Allspark, or it can mean death and destruction for the innocent people of Earth. Now, this was a huge moment for film, mostly for the leaps and bounds made with CGI for this time period. For context, 2007 is before the Marvel Cinematic Universe, before Star Wars returned with The Force Awakens, before so many action and sci-fi franchises that we praise today for top-of-the-line visual effects. And honestly, it's aged splendidly. No other movie was animating machinery and giant battles like this one. I would argue these robotic animations walked so things like Iron Man could run. And for the 11-year-old me that was watching, it had all the bells and whistles of a cool action film that's gonna make me run home and go play video games where I also get to blow stuff up. Man, is that a red flag on my end? Nah, it's probably fine. Running through the cast, you had Shia LaBeouf as Sam Witwicky. It's weird to think of a time when Shia was a new kid on the block. At this point, I mostly knew him from The Even Stevens and Holes from 2003. He'd also had roles in Indiana Jones and iRobot, all great gigs, but certainly this is the film that catapulted him from memorable child star to a huge Hollywood name. Beside him is Megan Fox as love interest Michaela Baines. 
schoolmate of Sam's with a pension for hot wiring cars and being a bit of a badass rebel. Many say she should have been the main character of the franchise with that particular skill set, but this was 2007 and cars are for boys, man. Megan came into this a relative acting newbie herself, having prior only really having prominent roles in Confessions of a Teenage Drama Queen in 2004. Again though, this would be the franchise that bolstered her career. Film students and scholars studying the objectification of women in Hollywood may argue that wasn't for the best, but hey, fast forward to today and she's happily engaged and had a recurring role in New Girl, so she's doing fine. Of course, we have the voices of the Autobots and Decepticons themselves. The legend that is Peter Cullen voices Optimus, who had also voiced him in the cartoons, video games, theme parks, and more consistently from the 1980s to present day. He is a living legend. And you also have Hugo Weaving as Megatron. Honestly, this Matrix, Captain America, the man was born to play a villain. And the movie was directed by Michael Bay, who at this point made his mark on Hollywood working on things like Pearl Harbor and the Bad Boys franchise, which also happens to feature Megan Fox in an uncredited role, funny enough. He teamed up with the legend Steven Spielberg, who executive produced, to have a crack at the Transformers franchise and create what would become a kind of signature style for Bay, that being a whole lot of explosions and chaos that fans affectionately dub Bayhem. You already know what time it is, it's time for the best scenes. But instead of hitting you with three big scenes from each film like I normally do, instead I'm going to do a breakdown of the best and almost iconic moment from each film as and when we get to them. Otherwise we'd be here all day and honestly the easter eggs and behind the scenes fun facts for each film is by far the more interesting part of this episode, trust me. For the first Transformers film, I've got to give the best scene to Optimus vs Megatron at the climax of the film. Okay, so spoiler alert, most of my favourite scenes in this episode will be action scenes. I mean, what did you expect? Sam has the cube that both sides are after, so it's war in the middle of the city as the Decepticons rain hell trying to get to him. The entire final sequence was raw and dramatic as hell. It's where Michael Bay's style works well, in that the chaos and senseless explosions really make you feel immersed, like you're one of the civilians running for your life. Optimus and Megatron going at it was badass as hell. Not only were both throwing hands, but Optimus was kind of fighting him with an arm tied behind his back as he was simultaneously covering Sam with the cube. The human soldiers coming in with the assist was so cool too, giving Megatron some hits to slow him down. There was also a hilarious moment at the start of that fight that I loved. When Megatron gets up, he very quickly sees a human and says, Disgusting! and flicks him into a car. I think what bolstered this scene too was Cullen and Weaving's back-to-back -back one-liners. One shall stand and one shall fall. You still fight for the weak and that is why you lose. Ooh, I swear, as much as they cast good actors in these films, the vocal cast are really the MVPs of the franchise. And now it's time for Easter eggs and behind the scenes details you may not have known about the first Transformers movie. Transformers was famously a toy brand before anything. The idea was simply to have toys of cars that turned into robots, two things kids were super into back then. It later expanded into a long-running animated franchise and of course huge films, but if you're like me, you have a warm feeling of nostalgia from thinking about your old Optimus Prime toy. A lot of Transformers origin and backstory actually came from Marvel. Back in the 1980s, Marvel teamed up with Hasbro's for Transformers comic books, and there is where we get a bit more backstory into the Transformers. So things like the destruction of Cybertron and the rivalry between Optimus and Megatron began in Marvel. 
In fact, those Transformers comics at the time were considered to be a canon part of the Marvel Universe, even crossing over with Spider-Man in their third issue. Transformers was conceptually inspired by a Japanese anime franchise, Mobile Suit Gundam, with the 1980s animated series and movie bearing a lot of visual similarities to it. Sam Witwicky is an original character created for the film, but he was actually inspired from the animated series character Spike Witwicky. The creators looked to movies like E.T. when conceptualizing Sam, as they wanted the audiences to see the world of the film through the POV of the main character, just like E.T. did with Elliot. And I actually think this Spielbergian energy is what separates this first film from all the rest. Since the actors on set had to talk to Transformers that would be added in post, the crew gave them giant poles with Transformers faces on them so they knew roughly where to look at, especially since they were all different heights. Alright, here we go. Shia LaBeouf almost got mauled by dogs on his first day of filming. There's a scene where Sam is being chased by guard dogs, and that was actually Shia's first day on set, and the dogs got a bit out of hand, chasing Shia even when the camera stopped rolling and the trainer barely being able to keep up. Everyone agreed that if Shia wasn't as fast as he was at the time, they would have for sure bit into him and he'd be off the movie. So the first Transformers movie turned over $709 million worldwide, Critics gave it somewhat mixed reviews, most having to look past their usual dislike of Michael Bay's directing to actually acknowledge that the first film was a really good one. Roger Ebert said, It's goofy fun with a lot of stuff that blows up real good, and it has the grace not only to realise how preposterous it is, but to make that into an asset. And I couldn't agree more. The film also won Best Movie at the MTV Movie Awards and scored several VFX wins at the VFX Society Awards. Sadly though, it didn't escape some opposite wins though, with John Voight being nominated for Worst Supporting Actor at the Razzies. Like I said at the top, I think this is a super enjoyable film, but I will say the first few Transformers films are generally what I'd call popcorn flicks. Look, in my opinion, a sad fact of the franchise is that it does become a bit of a textbook example of what a lot of filmmakers try to steer clear from nowadays such as the cinematic objectification of women, flashy effects and visuals to keep attention, and a shameless amount of product placement. Seriously, how many car companies do you think pay for an ad in this film? But that's cinema. We as an audience grow and adapt and can spot these things a bit more clearly now. I still would say for this first installment, it serves its purpose as just a good two hours of wall-to-wall, never-done-before action. The VFX were groundbreaking, the speeches were iconic, and it inspired so much more advancements in sci-fi filmmaking. Six movies later, and you can't deny, this thing was a hit. Now let's get right into movie two, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen. Set two years after the events of the first film, the Autobots have been helping the US military track rogue Decepticons and take them out before they cause harm. But when a dormant Decepticon known as the Fallen rises up, Sam and Michaela are brought back into the fold to learn the history of the Transformers and defeat their powerful new foe. Okay, I'm just gonna nip this one in the bud and say it's not the best, at least in my opinion. You really need to temper your expectations going in, because where the first film was great due to its iconic action and CGI balanced with a healthy amount of comedy and human story, this one took a different route. Firstly, it takes the comedy that was used sparingly in the first film and just exaggerates it to a point where everything feels just vulgar and that's the joke. It's like they took elements of Family Guy and American Pie and shoved it into a movie. 
still, that's just my opinion. Others I've seen praising it as one of the better films in the franchise, but I'm pretty sure that's due to the action sequences being really good. Megan Fox's acting certainly improved between films too. She carries a lot more emotional weight in her acting now. There was a massive improvement. Okay, no time to lose. The best scene of the movie, obviously, is the forest fight. Similar to the first film, Sam is on the run from Decepticons and Optimus has to fight them while simultaneously covering Sam. I love how the fight just looks. The contrast between the giant machines and this vast nature landscape. Optimus using the trees as weapons with a nice touch too. And I just love how fast and fluid Optimus himself is during the fight. A lot of movies depict large characters to move super slow, but not this one. This one feels fast and nimble, the way Optimus retracts and protracts his sword mid-fight, so good. And he goes incredibly hard in the fight, even outnumbered, giving all three of them trouble with that line, I'll take you all on. That was cold. The heroic score during his takedowns were great too. They really just boost your adrenaline throughout, giving us a false sense of hope making it hit that much harder when the enemy gets the jump on Optimus, impaling him. This was painful to watch. The lead hero defeated halfway through the film. It really heightens the drama. The whole scene was a clear sign of Optimus just being an absolute unit of a fighter. Now for some Easter eggs and behind the scenes details. Revenge of the Fallen was the first film to ever be able to shoot in the Jordanian city of Petra. Since a lot of the film's climax takes place in the desert atop pyramids, Michael Bay wanted to shoot in Jordan, with Petra being home to several beautiful ancient landscapes. Usually, they don't let people film there as its sacred holy ground in the Middle East, but it was allowed because Secretary General Zahi Hawass was a big fan. Michael Bay leaves a nod to his previous work with Sam's college roommate having a poster for Bad Boys 2. Michael Bay's own dog, Bone Crusher, makes a cameo in the shop Michaela works at. The dog was actually named after an actual Transformer in the mythos, and this wouldn't be his last cameo. More on that later. The twin Autobots, Skid and Mudflap, were famously criticized for being gross caricatures of African-Americans, with offensive accents, being bumbling comic reliefs, and even being somewhat illiterate. But that wasn't the intention in the original script at all. In fact, they were just going to be normal Autobots, but the version we got on screen was Michael Bay's plan in post-production, as he thought it'd be funnier. Oh, Michael, just, just so many mistakes. A lot of Transformers Revenge of the Fallen was rushed and shot without a finished script entirely. The production took place during the WGA writer's strike, leaving screenwriters Orki and Kurtzman unable to amend or complete their script. That is why many believe this to be the weakest and most different in tone film of them all, because the writing and comedy was mostly the work of Michael Bay himself with a three-week deadline. Don't underestimate the necessity of a really good writer. Sam's sudden hand injury midway through the film was written in because Shia LaBeouf actually severely wounded his hand during a car accident. Revenge of the Fallen sits at a painful 20% on Rotten Tomatoes with critics, but fans split right down the middle at 57%. Critic Roger Ebert calls the film a horrible experience of unbearable length, briefly punctuated by three or four amusing moments. Now on the flip side, my buddy and famed content creator Matt Ramos, aka Suits, says that all three original Transformers movies are perfect, with The Fallen being his favourite. 
Personally though, sorry Matt, I've got to go with the critics on this one. I thought it was egregious, but luckily the action scenes were really good because that's where Michael Bay shines and the script in that area isn't needed much beyond... Still, despite the mixed reviews, it was a box office success, earning over 800 million worldwide. It is one of the highest grossing Transformers movies of all time, starting a trend I found interesting of poorly scored films being box office hits. It was even nominated for an Oscar, one of the rare Transformers movies to claim that spot for best sound mixing. Which I'm sure sound mixers Greg P. Russell, Gary Summers and Jeffrey Patterson must be super proud of and as they should be. It's a great milestone. Look, on the technical side, I think this film does deserve its flowers. Like taking a step back and realizing what can be done with the advent of CGI is impressive. God bless VFX workers. However, it doesn't take a film professor to know that to get a good script, you need writers. Which, thanks to the writer's strike of 2007, this film simply did not have. They tried to jump in and carry the torch, and it hurt the film bad. Transformers Dark of the Moon, the third installment in the franchise, dropping in 2011. Launch auto sequence has started. In this one, Sam and his new girlfriend Carly are caught in the war between the Decepticons and Autobots again. This time with the Autobots having a plan to revive an ancient Autobot, Sentinel Prime, to help in their fight. But this goes awry, leaving our heroes in a really tight spot and Chicago ground zero for the Decepticon invasion. Okay, we're kind of back to form here with this one. Is it a perfect Transformers movie? No. But man, in my opinion, it's a leaps and bounds better than the second. I'll get my only gripe out of the way, and that's the first act of the film and this new character, Carly. Rosie Huntington-Whiteley just feels like a placeholder actress, and she just didn't have anything to do in the film but stand there during explosions with her hair and makeup somehow totally intact. It seems like this new character Carly was there for nothing other than an awkward love triangle and motivation for Sam to get a job in the first act. The Transformers side of the story I actually really liked. There was no writer's strike at this time around, meaning the script was actually serviceable. The concept of the Transformers allying with Sentinel Prime and that decision being their downfall was interesting. And the entire second half of the film essentially being a war in Chicago, for better or worse, lets this movie do what it's known for, war-to-war -war action. Sentinel Prime was unique because he didn't just side with Megatron just for evil's sake, he really saw his vision as the right one and the best way to bring Cybertron back. And Lennon Nimoy kills it in this role too, that gritty old man voice angry at everyone and not letting Megatron walk all over him and just generally being an active threat to everyone, I loved it. The best scene in the film for me comes in the climax. Once again, you shouldn't be surprised, it's where all the best action sits in these movies. Optimus vs Sentinel Prime vs Megatron You see, there is a reason everyone loves Optimus Prime. There's a reason he was my favorite Transformer growing up. He is him. Optimus is doing his best, throwing hands with Sentinel and it's not working out. The combat is just getting more and more intense. Sentinel removes one of Optimus' arms and stabs him, reminding you of his defeat in the second movie. But since villains can never truly team up for long, Megatron turns on Sentinel as he gets territorial over Earth. And that gives Optimus just a long enough window to recover with one of his most badass lines, 
Megatron says, Who are you without me? And Optimus simply replies, Let's find out. Leading to this epic clash where Optimus rips out Megatron's head and spine, ending his longest running foe. For now. Okay, Easter eggs and behind the scenes details from Dark of the Moon. Leonard Nimoy voices Sentinel Prime in this film, and this isn't his first stint in the world of Transformers. He also voiced famed villain Galvatron, which was a hint to diehard fans watching that Sentinel Prime becoming villain was near enough guaranteed. I personally liked Sentinel Prime mainly because I thought the twist was cool and I was one of the people at the time that didn't realize Leonard Nimoy was Galvatron and didn't see that twist coming, but many do say that his speeches and logic didn't make a lot of sense. But fun fact, most of his Transformers features and speech were based off of Sean Connery. Writers plan to have the villain Unicron appear in this film as the main antagonist since the previous film's villain The Fallen was his servant but they scrapped it, revisiting Unicron years later in Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Did you know both Optimus Prime and Megatron have played the same Marvel villain? Hugo Weaving, the voice of Megatron, of course played Red Skull in Captain America The First Avenger, but also Peter Cullen, the voice of Optimus, played Red Skull in an episode of Spider-Man the Animated Series called The Capture of Captain America. This is more of a fun fact for me personally, but Miley Flanagan has a short role in The Elevator with Sam. She is the voice actor of Naruto, my personal favorite anime. Dark of the Moon performed marginally better than the second film, with a Rotten Tomato score of 35%. Not great, but the film is praised for its impressive VFX and action, but the script was still on the weaker end and the runtime was way, way too long. Once again though, it did receive Academy Award noms in sound and VFX, but also 8 Razzie nominations. It's no surprise that this film didn't stop this franchise in its entirety since it earned a whopping 1 billion in the box office, the first film in the franchise to do it and to this day the highest grossing of them all. Look, you want my opinion, anything they spat out would have been better than Revenge of the Fallen and this one I think was clearly better. I think by digging deeper into their own lore, they were able to have an actual compelling story with the Autobots. It was the human characters that dragged the film down. Shia's performance in this film just felt like he as an actor was already done and he was just phoning it in. Something I think they did brilliantly in later films like Bumblebee is humanize the alien character, allow us to connect with them emotionally more because that element worked in this film, just not enough to make it great. Transformers Age of Extinction. We are now in the fourth film of this franchise and if you thought the third one was somewhat a step up from the second, I did too. But I was also a little disappointed as this one drags it back down. Set sometime after the events of the third film, Age of Extinction shows us an Earth that now fears Transformers after the Battle of Chicago and wants them all gone. New character KD Yeager is an inventor who stumbles upon Optimus Prime who was in hiding where they team up to fight the war together. Okay, so in this film we get a whole new set of protagonists, Mark Wahlberg, Nicola Peltz and Jack Rayner. With Shia LaBeouf leaving, presumably this was just a smart decision to revamp the franchise and give a totally new tone with new characters. And I think it kind of worked. 
The film does follow the same formula as the last three, but this time you don't mind spending time with the humans. Like Cade having tech know-how and being built like, well, like Mark Wahlberg, really gives a different view on his usefulness overall in the story. Honestly, I think Mark Wahlberg in this film was an infinitely more interesting leading man than Shia LaBeouf had been, at least in the second two. Yes, him being an inventor felt odd, but he was in the muck, he really got into the action and he took his role in the film seriously. Mark, I think as much as he has his action energy, he also has this comedic charm that makes him more enjoyable. Nicola Peltz, who you may remember from the Avatar The Last Airbender live action, I know we're not supposed to talk about it, but you know. She is basically the Megan Fox stand-in in the movie, and for me, it wasn't the most comfortable to watch. She plays Cade's teenage daughter, Tessa. She does a better job than Rosie Huntington-Whiteley did as Carly, but still, I feel like Michael Bay really needs to let that particular view of women characters go. Okay, let's not waste too much time and crack into my favourite scene of this film, and you guessed it, it's another action scene. It's the moment Cade helps Optimus by taking on Lockdown one-on-one. -on -one. Suspension of disbelief needed here, sure, but this was cool because it's not something we've typically seen in these films before. The most Sam and the human soldiers did in the previous film was run, scream, and occasionally throw things at the Decepticons. Here, not only was it badass to see Cade actually be able to stand against Lockdown and not die, but it was a needed moment of inspiration for Optimus. The whole film we've seen humans fear and hate Transformers, yet here, one man was willing to put his life on the line and stand ten toes down against an enemy for him. Now some more easter eggs and behind the scenes details in Age of Extinction. Lockdown's original design was going to incorporate the eyeballs of his victims wrapped around him like a belt. Not surprised why they decided to go for something a little bit different. This film includes less complex and clunky designs for the Transformers and instead a more sleek look, largely pulled from the IDW Transformers comics and the Transformers Prime series. The Decepticon Stinger was based on the 2007 animated series character Wasp, who was an evil counterpart to Bumblebee. Luke Mitchell, Hunter Parrish and Brandon Thwaites all auditioned for the role of Shane in this film and Isabel Cornish, Margaret Qualley and Gabrielle Wilde all went for Tessa. And interestingly, Age of Extinction is the longest film of the franchise, clocking in at a whopping 2 hours and 45 minutes. Critics did not favour this film, saying the longer the movie goes on, the less interesting it becomes and it just wears you down. And that it's the worst and most worthless Transformers movie yet. And fans aren't far behind in their dislike for this film too, in fact, a lot of people feel that the films following the original three just don't compare. I'm personally not one of them, I think there's a lot to love in the later films, but we'll get into that later. Now, box office was 1.1 billion worldwide, and okay, pause. Notice the trend here, despite critics giving these films the worst reviews, despite fans all collectively agreeing that these films weren't great, they blockbust every single time. I don't think you guys realise how hard it is for a movie to break a billion, that is not for the faint of heart. My theory is that this film succeeds in two ways. One, it has all of the bells and whistles of a mindless action adventure such as cars, explosions, fights, more explosions as well as recognisable star power. But two, it markets itself like crazy. 
Due to the film's huge acceptance of product placement, its budget and room for marketing is always sky high. We're talking racetracks, billboards, TV ads, energy drinks, clothes, car companies, and so much more. Now, my overall thoughts about Age of Extinction. I mean, four films in, my brain was kind of ready to accept this film for what it is. Hours and hours of action and explosions. To be honest, when you lower the bar in your mind, it actually can be enjoyable. I can say for a fact that this franchise does eventually climb out of its messiness, just not here. Still though, take it for what it is. All you guys that tell me I look too deep into films and that I'm too critical for films, this is for you. All the spectacle and mayhem you can ask for. Michael Bay's final crack at the franchise before he'd hang it up, and thankfully he left on a somewhat better note. Humans and Transformers are at war, and Optimus Prime's gone missing, so it's up to K. Diego and Bumblebee to uncover a deep history about the Earth's relationship with the Transformers to save the world. Wait a sec, humans involved with Transformers to uncover secrets of the Transformers' past to take on a new threat? Yeah, that is basically the plot of most of these movies. This one's got a bit of fun though. It's long, absurdly long, but it's fun. Returning to the franchise is Josh Duhamel, the former soldier who teamed up with the Autobots in the past and now a part of a task force that hunts Transformers. Anthony Hopkins as the professor who basically holds all the exposition of the film I think was kind of a wasted role for him, but they must have paid a lot of money to get someone like him. And Stanley Tucci appears as Merlin, even though he also played a completely different character in the last movie. Anyway, time for best scene of this film. The opening action sequence with Lancelot and the gang fighting in the war, and Merlin rescuing them on a dragon. It was a super cool environment for Michael Bay to play to his strengths in that it was purely action and bloodshed. We got loads of his signature wide sweeping shots, everything is gritty and violent. Honestly, I would not have minded a whole movie just fully set in this time period following the Knights of the Round Table with the Cybertronian weapons, as well as Merlin using that powerful staff. Sadly, that wasn't the case and we got a lot of Anthony Hopkins just talking at Mark Wahlberg. Still though, with this franchise giving us Transformers versions of anything imaginable, it was only a matter of time before we got a whole robot dragon and that was cool as heck. Michael Bay apparently said that this scene was the hardest for him to shoot because it's not an era he's worked in before. The style of combat wasn't his forte, so he really had to knuckle down to make things like bows and arrows and sword fighting work and still feel cool and interesting for the audience that came to see robots fighting. And sadly, it was made extra hard since his dog Bone Crusher passed away just the day before shooting, so his head wasn't really in the game. Still, he pulled off a pretty awesome scene. And yes, they're like one of the many behind the scenes details of this film, so let me run through some of them here. Jim Carter voices Cogman, and he was cast because the writer Matt Holloway is a big fan of Downton Abbey and joked about getting him in. Executive producers happened to love the idea, so they made it happen. The Transformer Bulldog was based on a combination of the Transformer Warpath from the 1984 animated series and Blitzwing from the 2007 series. Isabella Merced plays Isabella and has a little Transformer sidekick called Squeaks. She was such a fan of the thing that she asked for a prop of him and the creative team made it happen. 
Optimus Primal from Transformers Beast Wars was going to appear in this film as a knight of Cybertron with a gorilla-like design. Now this was unfortunately scrapped, but they'd revisit Primal in the most recent installment, Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Now, as far as critical reception, the film got a 16% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, with critics across the board just entirely over Michael Bay's work on these movies. One critic said that every time Michael Bay directs another Transformers, the franchise dies a little more. Although many do agree that it is marginally better than Age of Extinction. Still, it was Peter Bradshaw with The Guardian who put it best when he said that it competes with Marvel movies in regards to spectacle, but with none of the wit or fun. I mean, Mark Wahlberg is funny in general, but you spread that across two and a half hours of him walking around and getting talked at by Anthony Hopkins and a robot, the excitement drops a little. The Last Knight hit 600 million in the box office worldwide, a humongous drop off from the last films. Paramount reportedly lost over 100 million with this film's failure, and it's believed that the complete disappointing turnover from this one is why Michael Bay decided to stop making them. But I personally think that's fine in the end, as I really think the franchise is in much better hands with Bay out of the picture. I think The Last Knight is what Age of Extinction should have been, a bit of a revamped in concept while still following the traditional Transformers formula. I do personally feel had they cut a lot of the walking around shots and exposition dumping, we probably could have got a tighter and far more enjoyable movie. Still, for what it is, I didn't hate The Last Knight. It may have pulled on the cheesiness a little strongly, but overall it delivers on a fun action-packed adventure that many enjoy. I'm personally super glad this was the end of Michael Bay's era though, because I can say with confidence, it only gets better from here. Now for Bumblebee. Bumblebee is the first prequel in the Transformers franchise and the first film to not be directed by Michael Bay, and as such, adopting a much different tone and style. In it, Bumblebee flees a war on his home planet of Cybertron and takes refuge in a junkyard in California. Here, he befriends a young girl named Charlie, and she'd help him stay safe from his Decepticon hunters as well as the human government. Okay, I'll say outright, I think this one is the best of the Transformers franchise. It's exactly what I want from a Transformers movie, something that follows a familiar E.T.-like storyline of a kid bonding with an alien. In addition to the badass action you'd expect, it toads down the chaos for a deeper, more character-focused story, both in the human characters and in the Transformers. There's so much heart in the film, and I think Hayley Steinfeld really brings out a more authentic, Transformer-to-human connection than even Shia LaBeouf did. Not to mention all of the homages to the original animation, I was very impressed. As a super fan of Transformers cartoons and toys back in the day, if you thought the best scene of the film was going to be anything other than the badass opening scene, you are crazy. The Autobots are under attack, fighting for their lives to protect their homeworld. Bumblebee, Optimus, and their friends running and fighting, giving all the adrenaline of a video game. It was so awesome to see all these characters that I'd grown up with in one place. Also in their original designs. RC, Brawn, Wheeljack, it was honestly just a huge love letter to the older shows and the fans that watched them. And it really shows how much emotion and heart they can inject into the Transformers without necessarily needing all of the human characters yet. Immediately, we bond with Bumblebee, we know his pain, we know his battle, and we're emotionally tied to him throughout the rest of the film. There's not much else to say, it's one of the best scenes of the entire franchise, honestly. 
Now for some Easter eggs and behind the scenes details you may not have known about Bumblebee. Bumblebee is the cheapest Transformers film of the franchise at less than $130 million budget, which I think speaks to its favour of quiet moments rather than a need for excessive and expensive action. The entire opening sequence of the film shows the Autobots in designs ripped straight from the 1980s animated series, such as Optimus's more square and vibrant red design, Bumblebee's horned and rounder aesthetic, and several other Transformers make cameos too, including RC, Brawn, Cliffjumper, Wheeljack, Ironhide, Soundwave, Ravage, Shockwave, and Starscream, again all pulled from their classic looks. The scene of Bumblebee running from John Cena in the woods and showing him diving off a bridge to escape is an almost shot-for-shot -shot recreation of the scene from Castle of Cagliostro. Charlie finding a hologram message of Optimus in Bumblebee was very similar to Luke finding Leia's message in R2 in Star Wars. In general, this film pays a lot of homages to 1980s classics to set the era. In this film, V turns into a Volkswagen Beetle, the same car as his animated 1984 design, and Volkswagen only took so long to allow this transformation because they didn't want their car associated with such excessive violence of the original franchise. This film adopts a more Steven Spielberg-esque story, again centering the story around a younger character and their alien companion, swapping out action and chaos for a deeper and more grounded story. The film also has a lot of Steven Spielberg references, including a Gremlins poster in the cinema, Charlie wearing a BFG shirt, and Memo having a poster of Raiders of the Lost Ark. The movie features the song The Touch by Stan Bush, which was the main theme song for the 1986 movie, and the 1980s opening credits animation is recreated when B and Dropkick have their final fight. Bumblebee got a worldwide gross of 468 million, which of course pales in comparison to its predecessors, but due to its smaller budget, still it's regarded as a success and indicated to the studios that there is hope for this franchise yet. The film smashed it critically, sitting at 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, with fans and critics alike praising it for being a heartfelt story with a lot of fun and breathing new life into the otherwise bloated and suffering franchise. It's also worth discussing its awards buzz, not earning any major wins, but also being the first to not receive any negative Razzies as The Last Five had, and in fact winning one Razzie for Razzie Redeemer because it really pulled the franchise back from the failures of its past. Now here are my overall thoughts on Bumblebee. I think the film deserves all of its flowers and more. As a fan of the 1980s and 90s versions of the Transformers, I felt super well fed and invested. The only shame comes from them not continuing with this particular set of characters, but still, I don't think they fell too far off with the follow-up. Overall, it was a deep character story, it had a level of childish wonder and awe to it, with lots of fun and creative action sequences, all of which was fresh for the franchise. All in all, Bumblebee to me knocks it out of the park. Transformers Rise of the Beast is the final film for this podcast and most recent entry into the Transformers saga. Optimus and the Autobots team up with their fellow Cybertronians, the Maximals, as they take on the Terracons to stop them from destroying Earth. Anthony Ramos leads the film as Noah Diaz, an ex-soldier now looking for a job in security, and he's joined by Dominique Fishback as Eleanor Wallace, a history buff and museum intern who uses her knowledge of archaeology to help the Autobots and Maximals in their searches. 
Rise of the Beast was a fun time, honestly. I think for the most part, it took the same lessons learned from Bumblebee and applied it all again. At least for the first two thirds of the film, reducing scale of the action and chaos and giving more care to the story of the characters. Namely, Noah. I think the story of him wrestling between doing what he needs to do to protect the planet and family versus what the morally right thing to do is, was very compelling. Meeting characters like his brother was a nice touch too, to add some gravity. Not to mention all of the 90s nostalgia and references throughout, who that was a good era. For now, let's talk about the best scene of the movie. Now, here's the thing. If you've seen this movie, you know the exact scene I'm going to say without me having to say it. Ready? Say it with me now. Don't call it a comeback. Early in the film, Bumblebee is killed by a Terracon, but unsurprising to us that no, he lives well into the future films, he gets revived and joins the battle midway through the chaos to lend an assist. I think this is my favourite trope in fiction, and you see it all the time in anime, Marvel movies do it too, and it's when all hope seems lost in a fight, and then a character that's been out of commission for ages comes in clutch to save the day. Dragon Ball does this, the Avengers does this, and yes, Bumblebee kills it here too. Mama gonna knock you out, scoring it just gets your blood pumping, and wow, watching him free fall and use Nightbird as a living shield was just so damn cool. And that final shot, Nightbird's sword and limbs crashing down, and B hitting that superhero landing and dropping a Tom Hanks line from a league of their own, I've come here to kick ass. And they removed the chew bubblegum line from that film too, and I loved it. And for the last time, let's talk about the Easter eggs and behind the scenes details of this film. Rise of the Beast largely adapts the 1990s Transformers spin-off franchise, Beast Wars. This was the story and coinciding line of toys that saw the Transformers choose to turn into animals to fit their new planet that they were on. Ron Perlman voices Optimus Primal in this film, reprising his role from the recent web series, Power of Primes. In this film, Mirage turns into a Porsche 964 Turbo, because it's the same car that Michael Bay had put in his previous film, Bad Boys, and while he didn't direct this one, Stephen Capel Jr. wanted to include it as an easter egg to the OG director. Optimus Primal's transformation into a warrior was based on concept art of what he was planned to look like in the last night film. Noah's brother asked to use codenames Sonic, Tails, and Knuckles, and he's of course talking about Sonic the Hedgehog and his sidekicks Tails and Knuckles. Of course, huge in the 90s, but also like the Transformers, they're a film franchise owned by Paramount. When Elena looks up the artifacts online, she sees that the authors of the article she was reading has the surnames Tomi and Takara, the names of the toy companies that merged together to produce and design Transformers in Japan. And of course, the film ends with Noah being recruited into G.I. Joe, another Hasbro's toy franchise. I think that was a clever way to do a bit of brand synergy, and the company has since announced a crossover film. Sadly, this film is the lowest performing film in the franchise, landing on 439 million worldwide. Now, while the money didn't go as expected, some critics did still seem to enjoy it. IGN say that it proves that Bumblebee wasn't a fluke and the franchise finally is accelerating in the right direction. I really enjoyed this film. It had really good action, a super entertaining voice cast and an actual heartfelt character story in the center with Noah. The designs were all nostalgic and they imitated the more fast and fluid combat style that Bumblebee used rather than just senseless Bayhem. The soundtrack and vibe of the 90s was super comforting to experience and it's certainly a new story that I'm excited to continue exploring. 
My main gripe with this film really is just the runtime. Much like with the previous installments, they tried to do too much and extend everything to a point where big chunks of the film simply could have been cut. Everything around Elena wasn't that entertaining to me and just felt like she was there to exposition dump rather than actually have a character of her own. Nevertheless, I think this is an underrated hit of the franchise. And while it's not better than Bumblebee to me, I think it does go to show that box office numbers don't necessarily equate to a bad movie. And there we have it, seven movies, one podcast. My thoughts on the franchise as a whole is that in 2007, Michael Bay had broken a lot of boundaries. The VFX was crisp, new, and genuinely maximized the idea of spectacle, but it was also coupled with a nice script that followed a formula that I think works well for this franchise, the E.T. formula. The idea of a younger human bonding with an alien companion and exploring both characters' individual emotional arcs as well as their bond together. I didn't enjoy too much of Michael Bay's Bayisms across the franchise, but still, where his skills are strongest, the action and spectacle. Bumblebee and Rise of the Beast are a departure from Bay's usual style, and sadly they didn't make crazy money, but I do hope that future films follow in that same direction as these ones create deep, character-first stories complemented by the awesome action scenes that, let's face it, this franchise is consistently good at. That's all in this episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening to Theories by T, the podcast. It means a lot that you guys listen to these all the way to the end, whether you're listening on your car ride home, on the tube, or even while you're having a poo. I'm honored. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Recommend it to your film-loving friends and come find me on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Theories by T. Remember, the Transformers film saga is all available on Sky Cinema, patiently awaiting your next binge. That's Sky Cinema to watch all the Transformers films I've mentioned today. I've been your host, T, and that's the T.